0: Well, amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 tonight. Genesis chapter 3. We are looking at the passage that's called The Fall of Man, and it's part of, uh, of our summer series related to creation and culture that we're also calling Applied anthropology. And we're going at this in two parts. Uh, first, we laid the foundation of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we've already done that. And we saw that the Bible taught us about the creation of the world. And then it zooms in, in chapter 2, on, the, on God's masterpiece, uh, mankind, uh, the image bearers, which is both male and, and female. And now, in the, the second half of this, of this series, after we took about that three-week break somewhere in the middle of the summer, uh, we're, we're going to look at the event that stands at the headwaters of all of the issues, the issues that you have in your marriage, the issues in your heart, the issues that are prevalent in, in culture, all of that is explained right here in chapter three, and we're calling it Applied Anthropology. It's the study of... Of man, and we're we're seeing how how that's that gets off track. Specifically, the depravity of man, how that plays out in in life, and and just like the, the Bible provides a straightforward explanation for creation in Genesis one and two, it's just as straightforward about well where all of our problems uh, came from. So we were talking this morning about authentic faith. Uh, God presents who He is very clearly in Scripture, and then we are commanded to, to, um, to believe that. Or, or you can choose not to, but it doesn't change who, who God is. And so y- you might l- listen to Genesis 3 and think it's a, an oversimplification of what's going on, but I think if you follow what's going on here and then you, you look at the rest of Scripture, you can, you can see that Genesis 3 introduces an event that affects the rest of human history. And as I said, it informs us about the source of all the brokenness in, in, in our world. I mean, currently we live outside of the garden. There are thorns and thistles here mingled in amongst the, the good parts of... Uh, that, that God has created. There's common grace. There, there, there's still a, the fingerprint of the Creator on things. We, we still have things to enjoy. But there are also crooked things that cannot be made straight to, among the guidance that God gives us to navigate those, those crooked roads. There's sin, there's sickness, there's evil, there's suffering in a world that God once called very good. And Genesis 3 shows us how we got here. I mean the chapter reveals where the ship got off a navigational course it's the it's the nick in the cable that caused the fray if you want to trace back where the where the fault line is it's it's right here and genesis 3 enlightens us about where all of the the wrong comes from in our world and and we need to understand that if we we hope to to respond and to navigate our our, our world well and and last week when uh we, we, we said we, when you put this entire chapter together, it, it, it's actually a series of declines. Uh, there are four devastating declines in the in the fall of man. There's a reversal of creation's order. That's in verses one through five. That's primarily the, the dialogue, uh, the conversation between Eve and the serpent. Then there's a, a rebellion by creation's members. That's in verses six and eight. That's when, when she sees and makes her own personal evaluation and then she eats and then Adam does as well. It's the rebellion when sin is actually brought to, to, uh, to full fruition, no pun intended. A recognition then through the Creator's questions in verses 9 through 13. This is when God engages in His own dialogue and He asks them a question, a series of questions, actually four of them that we'll look at tonight. And finally, there's the, the curse, the, the repercussions in the Creator's curse. And as you said, the story begins rather abruptly. If you remember from, from last week, there's, there's this conversation that just seems to come out of the blue. I mean, God's been the one talking, and when He speaks, things are happening. Creation is happening. God's been describing man and woman being made in His image, and He's giving them commands. He's giving moral law that, that you, can, you can freely eat of every tree I've placed in the garden, but here's a boundary with this one tree in the, in the middle, and He's saying be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth, and you, you see Adam doing some activity. He's, he's naming the animals that God's bringing to him. And then, and then he's talking about the woman when he sees her. He says, this is, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But then you just have this, this, this conversation that almost comes out of nowhere between the serpent and the woman. And, and that continues to that fateful decision by the couple to listen to his, to his anti-wisdom. And that's what we covered the last time, the first two, the the reversal and the, and the rebellion. And the story now continues, though. We'll, we'll, we'll see that tonight. It continues with a series of questions interposed by God to the hiding couple. It's in verses 10 through 13. And then it ends with the pronouncement of a divine curse. And it's still operative today. Verses 14 through, through 21. If, if you want to summarize what happened, it's actually a reversal of everything that was good that we just saw God create and design. I mean, the couple was made in God's image, and they went from leading creation to following the creature. They went from enjoying the creator's wisdom to choosing the serpent's error. They went from delightful fellowship with, with their maker and with each other to shame and separation that was now present between both God and man. Let me just give you a, a quick reminder, if you weren't here last week, of, of, of what, what we've covered so far. The first decline took place in the fall. In the fall, uh, in the fall is, a, is a reversal of creation's order. It starts with this disruption of the, the, the Creator's mandate. The, the serpent initiating leadership starts a cascading reversal of divine order. Look at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make wise, she took from it, from its fruit, and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Creation rules over the woman tempting her, and the woman rules over the man by speaking for both of them, and the man doesn't rule over anything, including himself. And ever since the fall, there's this perversion of divine order that's followed. I mean, the original sin is like the epicenter of the earthquake, and the shock waves move out from there, and there's still tremors today. It's, this foundational sin is what brings the worshiping of, of the creature rather than the creator the gender issues that are popping up even more more and more in our society, the, the dissatisfaction with the, with the body, the shame over the, over the human body, sexual perversions, feminism, chauvinism, frankly every other sin has its root right here in this reversal. Then there was a, a, a decline that came as a rebellion by, by creation's members. The reversal brought an eye-opening disobedience and that ended with a with a revealing disguise. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make her wise, she took. The, the pace picks up here. There's a lot of action words. Uh, the woman saw, she took, she ate, she gave, he ate. And the tree was good, just like God created it. But now Eve places herself in the role of the one determining what is good. I mean, she's not evaluating the goodness of the tree when she's going through this, this, this self-talk. Oh, it looks good for food. It's going to make me wise. I mean, she's not trying to evaluate the goodness of the tree. God's already said the tree's good. He made it good. She's evaluating the boundary of God, the boundary that God... Had. Will I go across this boundary or not? She's now evaluating whether the boundary is good. And Satan twisting the character of God in her mind tempts her to make an independent determination about something God had already declared was off limits. And she uses its appearance and its expedient benefit to draw her conclusion the same way that you, you, you find in the world today. The lure of the world is, is based on appearance and what seems expedient. Right now, not eternal. And instead of liberating her, it, it, it enslaved her and But Eve was not the primary point of failure, we pointed out last time. Adam was. He sits passively by, allows a creature to lead, allows God to be maligned, his wife to be deceived, and sin enter the garden that he was supposed to keep. The the one created to rule was ruled by both the the serpent and his wife. And Adam obeyed Satan rather than God, and there were immediate consequences. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and, and they knew keyword that they were naked now here's a similar fast-moving staccato of effects that take place their eyes were open they realize their nakedness they sow fig leaves they make a covering and sin when it takes place takes what was once pleasing to the eye and makes them want to cover it and makes them want to hide from from god the end of verse 7, the beginning of verse 8, they, they, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. I mean, mankind once walked with God, meaning in fellowship with Him, but their treachery ended that. So the, the question is, at this point in the narrative, there's tension. There's this conversation well, what are they going to do? What's the woman going to do? What's Adam going to do? Is he, is he going to rescue his wife or bail her out? And now the big question is, now that they, they've sinned and this, these consequences have come, the question is, what, what will the Creator do? What, how will He respond to such treason and, and, and rebellion? And that's what you find in this, this third decline comes through a recognition of a through the Creator's questions. God ask, asks four questions here. Where are you? Who told you? Have you disobeyed? That's a paraphrase. And then what is this? Or what have you done? Verse 13. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he answers. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So Eve's disobedience at the tree of, of knowledge leads them to hide amongst the trees. Kenneth Matthew says they were pictured, they're, they're pictured here like uh, in the story like children hiding in fearful shame from their, from their father. So God engages in a dialogue of his own in order to, to draw them out. And they're hidden grace in, in these words. And the Lord begins to speak. I mean, don't imagine the tone. I mean, how do you picture God at this moment? Steaming, boiling, angry, ready to, to lash out at the couple. That, that's not the way the Lord's uh, demeanor is right now. I mean, don't imagine the tone whenever you read these questions as, as if him calling them on the carpet. Adam, where are you? That's not what he's doing. Think of a compassionate father coaxing his reluctant children out of the shadows. Children that are, that are there because they have rightful shame. They're hiding and God's seeking them, but he knows where they're at. Both physically and spiritually. And he asks them questions to help them see where they're at and then to seek him, to come to him for, for the answer to their problem. Notice the, the order of God's speech. God reverses the order back to the original design. It, it goes from the snake to the woman to the man and, and now God reverses the order back to, back to the divine design. He, he inverts what you would expect. You would expect God to call out to the snake here because he's the one who initiated this But God goes back to his good design and he calls Adam first and and then he speaks to Eve. He says nothing to the snake at this point. And you can't see this well in English, but this is a singular you. Adam, where are you? And remember Eve, when she spoke uh, to the serpent, she spoke in plural, which is one of the evidences of her of her leading. She spoke for both Adam and Eve. But, but now God calls to the man because he bears primary responsibility in God's order of things. God doesn't violate his own order. I mean, God doesn't even address Eve until Adam brings her up in verse 12. The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And God says, okay, let's speak to her. Look at what God asks. Look at verse 9 again. Then the Lord, God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And then through verse 13, he he asked these other questions. Uh, Who told you? Have you broken my commandment? And and what have you done? I mean, four really good self-examination questions to ask yourself on a regular basis. Where are you in relationship to God? That's a good question to ask on a regular basis, isn't it? Are you near him? Are you walking in fellowship with him? Are you trying to hide from him due to sin and, and, and due to shame? I mean, the Bible says that we're to have a clear conscience or clean conscience, void of offense between God and man. And, and when you do, there's no distance between, between you or the Lord. You have peace in your soul. There's, there's nothing that nags or bothers you. But the opposite, of true is, the opposite is true as well. I mean, when you have a guilty conscience condemning you, there's a constant nagging and tugging of... Of guilt. I mean, you may figure out how to lessen that by, by distracting yourself, but it never goes away. It's like a low grade fever, it just keeps coming back. And if you let that, that go on too long, if you refuse to confess and, and, and you leave that, that, that guilt laying on your conscience, then, then, then your conscience, being constantly irritated, gets inflamed. It uh, and it goes off with every little little thing. I mean, you might picture it like a like a saddle sore on a, on a horse, or uh, if something stays there too long and, and rubs and irritates, then, then then the pain just radiates and it, it it just it's it's excitable. Everything then then causes it to go off. It goes off over every little thing, like a malfunctioning smoke detector. And then things get very confusing if you have an inflamed conscience. You you constantly wonder, am I, am I right with the Lord or, or or not? And even a Christian, if, if they refuse confession and, and let something lay on their conscience, their conscience gets inflamed. They, they can even get to the point where they question assurance and and salvation. That's not the way God wants you to live. Remember the purpose of a guilty conscience, the purpose of a of a conscience is, is to bring you to Christ. Is, it's to draw you to him so, so he can cleanse you. I mean, the, the convincing of the conscience is to, is to point you in the right direction. He cleanses us from dead works to serve the living God. Yes, it's painful to confess or, and the, or, or the blows that, that can come from our sin. Sometimes we, we get in pretty deep. But always remember, God is more merciful than your sin and his discipline, whatever it is, will be way less painful and shorter than the consequences of evil. And sometimes we know that, but we get in so deep, we need somebody to go in after us and, and, and pull us out. We just get so entangled in our sin, and that's part of the Christian life as well. It's you, why you need brothers and sisters in your life. Look at the second question that God asks. It's in verse 11. Who told you? I mean, Adam responds, I'm naked and I hid. And God says, who told you you were naked? And then he brings the the third question. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not, not to eat? Now, these are rhetorical questions. I mean, God's not asking for information. He's asking for introspection. I mean, God is asking for Adam to consider these questions. God's not asking so Adam can give him the data. He knows the data. I mean, when Adam responds... I was naked and ashamed, which, by the way, that ought to be the the title of the TV show, not naked and afraid, but naked and ashamed. God asks, where did that come from? Where did that shame come from, Adam? It wasn't from anything that I gave you. I mean, God's trying to help Adam recognize that things have changed and to realize the cause of the situation, the cause of... Of this, uh, of this shame. And when God brings us uh, to passages in the Bible that force us to look our sin in the, in the face, he's, he's not doing that to be cruel. It, it's an act of grace. I mean, listen, almost, almost no one will tell you the truth in the world today. Not even your husband. when they when, when you ask them, does this dress look okay? I mean, God's the only one who will tell you the whole truth, including the ugliness of our hearts. And He doesn't let us try to explain away our consequences and we'll call it a disease or somebody else's fault. And you'll see that in the next in the, in the list of questions. I mean, he doesn't do that. I mean, how unloving w- w- would it be to know where, where the cancer is but then to tell you you're okay, be warmed and be filled? <laughs> I mean, the most loving thing God can do is confront us, even directly. And here it's very, it's very gracious. Who told you? And then where did it come from? Here's the third question, verse 11. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? I mean, verses, I mean, question two and three go together. I mean, the first one is to focus Adam on the consequences. And the second one is to draw his, draw his attention to the source. The consequence is shame and hiding. And the source is the fact that he has been disobedient. He, he's eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat. You have shame, and you're hiding from me. Things are different, aren't they? Why? Because you ate from the tree. And notice how the tree is defined. It's not defined as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree which I drew the boundary around. The tree which I commanded you not to eat. That's how God defines it here. When you put these two questions together, it's to help Adam see that the shame and the separation came from his rebellion. And specifically, breaking God's commandment. And that's the place that God always brings us to first. I mean, you must see your problems come from, from violating one of God's specific boundaries. I mean, whenever I, I was lost, I, I knew I had problems. I, I knew I had all kinds of problems. I, I would just didn't know where they came from or how to own them. And so God helps us see that the problems comes from violating a specific boundary, whether it's sexual ones or gender boundaries or relational boundaries. I mean, He can't help you fix your marriage if you don't see that that you're breaking the command of of failing to love your wife or or having sinful anger. You say, I got a marriage problem. Well, God wants to help you with that. And the way that God will help you with that is is pointing that out. And that pain that comes in our lives, the shame, whatever it, it is, the pain that comes as a consequence of our sin God places there in order to show us what the real issue is, which is almost always dealing with our faith. And he doesn't erect barriers to be a killjoy. He puts them there because breaking them will kill you, period, if you, if you don't turn to him forgiveness. forgiveness. So, so what does Adam do in the face of such mercy and this piercing clarity that the Lord brings? I mean, Adam now knows... Well, he does what we all have a tendency to do. He, he blames someone else, even God. Verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. So Adam can't argue that he's full of shame and that he's hiding. That's obvious. He, he can't deny that he ate from the tree. And he also knew that it was clearly forbidden because God gave the command direct to, directly to Adam. So he blames Shift. See? which is another way of saying using someone else as a speed bump. I mean, he threw his spouse under the bus. I'm sure you've never done that before. I mean, despite of the, uh, of the one that, being the one that, that knew that what he was doing was wrong. Remember, Eve was deceived. And Adam knew. And he points to her as the real criminal. In the, in the Hebrew here, the she is emphatic. Uh, I only took what she gave me. And it doesn't end there. He's on a roll, so, so he reminds God that, that the woman was the woman you gave me. Also emphatic. And the same word is, is used here. You gave me the woman, and the woman gave me the fruit. The, the same word. It's a parallel. Kenneth Matthew says there's no escaping what Adam is saying. God is ultimately responsible for the success of the tempter in Adam's demise. I mean, he's saying... You remember when I was alone? And you said that it was not good for me to be alone, and you brought me the woman? Well, she wasn't very good for me, was she? Yes, I'm hiding, but let's get something straight here. She was your idea, and she was a mistake. And unfortunately, we, we do that all too often as, as well. We blame God for our mess. We even take gifts that he's given to us and we misuse them and then we, we blame the, the giver instead of the one that abused it. Well, I wouldn't have gotten mad if he would have just obeyed me. Well, if God had allow, hadn't allowed this to happen, then I wouldn't have sinned in this way, as if God's job is to perfectly control our environment to keep us from sinning. We're going to be more subtle and backhanded I mean, if he's a good God, then why is there evil in the world? Implying that God's not good if evil is present. Remember where evil came from. It was our sin. It was not God. God created a good world. Sin is a deliberate choice, and shifting blame will not remove accountability, which leads us to this final question in in verse 13. Look at verse 13. What, What have you done? Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Frankly, she gives the, <laughs> the clearest of responses out of, out of this whole dialogue. Now you might expect God to correct Adam even more here, but he has mercy on Eve too, so since Adam brought her up, God will address her as well. The Lord draws her out too with a question. I mean, can you imagine this scene? I mean, Adam is hiding among the trees in full shame, and, and he hears the Lord's voice. And Eve is not hiding with Adam because she's covering herself, covering her nakedness. And, but she can hear, obviously, the Lord and probably what Adam is saying. So she's hunkering down, hoping God will pass her by. And he, God calls out to Adam, and she's like, <laughs> And then she hears Adam mention her name. Now it was the woman. And so then the Lord calls out to Eve and challenges her to explain, literally, what is this? The, the you have done is implied. What is this? And now Eve is happy to follow Adam's lead. She blame shifts as well. She points to the serpent. Verse 13, and the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. But she doesn't blame God like Adam did. She acknowledges that she was deceived. And so now how will God respond? Well, that's the, the fourth repercussion here. Yeah, I just ran all the way through the end of it, guys. I don't know what happened there. The fourth decline is the repercussions in the, in the Creator's curse. There's the serpent's crushing consequence. The woman's painful repercussion, and then the man's arduous outcome. Now, with guilt established and a merciful confrontation extended, God now details the consequences. God now details how He'll respond. And I want you to notice that the order has changed once again. This time, it's based on the order of conspiracy. God created man, woman, creature creature reversed it to the woman to the man god then speaks to the man and the woman doesn't say anything to the creature and now in the curse he goes back in the order of conspiracy he speaks to the serpent verse 14 the lord god said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the heel and you shall bruise him on the head. God begins with the serpent. And this is the first of three divine judgment oracles here. And I want you to notice the causality in all of them. Because you have done this, God says, because of your sin. God's not arbitrary, he, especially in judgment. In Revelation 20, 12, at the great white throne judgment, the final judgment, it says the books were open. That's not so God can see what unbelievers have done. Ah, oh, let, let, let's see if, if you made it or not. It's to remind the person that's standing before God's judgment throne and everyone else in heaven watching that God is just. And the penalty that, that's about ready to to be rendered is deserved. In each of the punishments here, part of the curse, relate to the sin that each person committed. Or to say it another way, the penalty fits the crime. In the serpent who was lifted up in pride to rule over God's image bearers, his penalty is humiliation. He'll crawl on his belly. Jewish tradition says that before this, the serpent had, uh, had legs, but now he crawls. The text doesn't say that. The point here is, is the curse is his humiliation. He lifted himself up in pride, he, he rose above, and now God will, will put him low. Just as his craftiness made him special and different from all the other animals, now he will be different in the opposite way. He'll be lowly. And he'll also eat, eat the dust, just like he convinced Eve to eat the, the fruit, symbolizing disgrace and degradation. Dust was a symbol of, of humiliation. Wash the dust off of their, their feet. The, the, the disciples were to shake the dust off whenever they, whenever they left. And Adam was, was made or raised up from the dust of the ground, and now in death he'll return to the dust. Death has humiliated Adam and defeated Adam. One commentator said the reptile is responsible for the demise of man, a demise of man, who returns to the dust, and as the serpent's diet, it will be a personal reminder of his crime. And Not only that, for the crime of thinking that he could defeat God's created order, the woman's offspring will defeat him. From the man to the woman to the child. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The the final part of the curse of the serpent uh, will be animosity and and then then a, a future downfall. It's like saying what you started between you and the woman will continue perpetually between your offspring and hers. The word crush and bruise is exactly the the same in in Hebrew. The indication of who wins is where the blow is struck. He will strike a blow to to your head and you'll strike a blow to his heel. But did you catch the grace that's here? Remember God speaks to the, the serpent first. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not the reference to Christ, although ultimately that's exactly what happens on the cross. God has not pronounced judgment on the man or the woman yet, so we don't know what's going to happen to God's image bearers. Remember, you're, you're reading this and the tension's moving along. I mean, will they die? Will, will, they, will they be crushed themselves for their part in the rebellion? and you get a preview here of what God's going to do to them and not do to them in the serpent's judgment, the woman will have future seed. And this seed will be victorious, will be victorious over over his adversary. The word seed is used in the Old Testament. Theologically, it's a very significant term. It's used 59 times in, in Genesis. Almost all of them are positive, talking about God's blessing. Each time the word is is used, it often brings hope in the midst of a a narrative, progressive hope. Old Testament commentators detail this out. Seth was the the seed of Eve. She brought hope. Noah's seed brings hope until there was the seed of Abraham. Abraham's seed, Isaac, brings hope. And and then the seed that brings us complete victory is is none other than the the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.16 Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds is referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that that is Christ. And this victory, though, will not come without suffering. Look at verse 16, Genesis 3. He says, And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. God now turns to the woman and announces her punishment. Again, Matthews again notes the words of consequence here are softer. I The serpent and the man are both told, because you have done such and such, cursed are you. But there's no such language here for Eve. There's just a statement of two results. So what's going to result, you being deceived? And they both impact a woman's two primary roles, what she was created to do, childbearing and, and relating to her husband. Both of those areas are going to be irreparably changed. The woman will now bear seed in painful labor, God says. And her submission to her husband is going to be complicated from this point forward. It's going to be an ongoing battle. That's what this desire and ruling over, over means. There have been volumes written about the, these verses recently. I mean, modern feminism has argued that these verses have nothing to do with the battle of the sexes. In fact, they would argue that headship and submission, the, the, the distinction of roles in, in, in marriage is actually a product of the fall. I mean, not part of God's good design. They key in on the words here, your desire. They argue that the word desire just simply means a longing. You're just going to long for your husband. The meaning of the, of the word is, is defined not just the, by the definition of the word, but but how it's applied in the context here of the curse. I mean follow what God's saying. There's only one other time that this word desire is used. Your desire will be for your husband, it's in Genesis 4. It's in the next chapter talking about sins, desire or longing or craving for Cain. Song of Solomon uses it, but That's not as relevant because it's a different author and it's much farther away, and in hermeneutics you stay within the book and then within the author, and and we have one use of this word in the very next chapter by Moses. So the question is, how did Moses, the author of Genesis, apply this word here? And that's where this contrary interpretation of feminism goes astray. I mean, I think the answer for, for this word lies in the in the correlation between before and after the fall. This is a judgment something that has changed. What was it like before and what's it going to be like now? And when you understand that, it becomes very clear what what God means here. I mean, God said he created things perfectly pre-fall and and now as the result of sin, there's this post-curse reality. God created man and and, and woman both as co-representatives on the earth. They both bear his image, so they're both equal in that standpoint, but they they have different functions. Adam was first created and then Eve. Adam was created to tend the garden. Eve was created to be his helper. Eve was made from Adam. Eve was made for Adam. Adam named Eve. And so pre-fall in God's good creation, both men and women were, were equal and they operated in this functional hierarchy and they carried out God's good purposes. They each had a role. Adam and Eve were to be fruitful and multiply. Adam had his part in that. Eve had her part in that. Eve's portion of that was to bear children. And Adam and Eve were to have dominion over the earth and subdue it, and and Eve's portion of that was to be Adam's helper, and and his portion of that was to be her leader and her protector. But the curse, in the curse, God is declaring the, the results, what has happened because they violated all of that, and the consequence is directly related to God's good order. There was a curse on the snake and creation itself because creation ruled over the woman, and he then announces the result that the fall will have related to both men and women. For Eve, rather than being fruitful and multiplying, the greatest blessing that a woman can fulfill—if the Lord opens the womb—she'll struggle to conceive and experience pain in childbirth. That's directly tied to being fruitful and multiply pre-fall. Eve will also have discord and disorder where there once was harmony with her husband. She'll now have a desire for her husband and he will rule over her. You kind of get an idea of what that means by what what Eve's desire means. He's going to lord over her. I mean, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve functioned perfectly in unison, equals in a hierarchy. Adam led Eve, Eve was his helper and, and there was no strife, there was no issue. But now in the fall, Eve ruled over Adam, and Adam failed to lead her, and the curse, and after the fall is, is the direct result of that disorder. So after the fall, equality will be challenged. The harmony and presiding over God's creation together will be harmed, and Eve will have a desire for her husband implied to, to be out from under him, to be over him, and Adam will... will Lord over her. The second half helps us understand what the first half implies. Eve's desire and Adam's Lord. I mean, what an ugly mess that sin has made. And then God finally speaks to the man. Here's the, the arduous outcome. Look at verse 17. Then to Adam he said... It's the causality again. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you. Again, the tree's not um, knowledge of good and evil, but it's which I commanded you. Saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. My friend Joel James says, if you ever get lifted up in pride, just quote this verse to yourself. Remember, you're made from dirt. You are dirt. You'll return to the dirt. Adam's crime is specifically spelled out. Because you listened to the voice of your wife, meaning followed her voice instead of God's, And he violated God's moral law, which was the boundary, the tree, which God gave directly to Adam. And his sin is reinforced when Moses repeats God's God's voice that, that he disobeyed. Which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. You Remember those words, Adam? And he reminds him the command was given to him. I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. And then the curse follows. The ground is cursed because of him, his labor is wearisome, and his death is sure. Just like the serpent and the woman, Adam's consequence is directly related to his disobedience. As man was given a divine mandate to subdue the earth where he was to spread the work of God... He was to take what God created and multiply it, not only with with children, multiply image bearers, but he was to take creation and he was to subdue it. He was to subdue it. He was to have dominion over it, meaning take what God has made and and make more stuff with it. Multiply it. Do something good with it. He's to spread the work of God. It, It now bears a curse because of him. He was given the task to tend the garden, and now the earth will bear thorns and, and thistles. Adam's work will not bring joy and pleasure as it did before. It's not going to be hard, and it's going to fight against his efforts. And just like the woman who will have pain in her unique task of childbearing, the man will have lifelong pain in his labor, in his task. King Matthew says the ground will now be his enemy rather than his servant. And notice God repeats all the days of your life. He said that to the serpent, and he said that to, to Adam. He's basically saying there's an altered condition of the land. It's no longer going to be a garden, uh, a fruit. Now what you plant is, is going to bring forth thorns. You're not going to be a garden keeper any longer. As one put it, you're going to be a toiling farmer. And then to that same ground, Adam will return. Verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam will labor without relief until he reaches his end, which is death. Here is Ecclesiastes in one verse two steps forward and one step back push the ball uphill only to lose your footing and have it to roll back down the hill again often over top of you chasing the wind finding it empty adam was brought forth from the ground by god's special creative work i mean when you zoom in in chapter two i mean god makes a big deal out of he takes he takes the the dust of the ground and he forms man and then he, he breathes a spirit, life into that man, soul into that man. God was brought forth by, from the ground by God's special creative work and sin has now returned Adam from where he came, back to the dust. The Apostle Paul declares it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and 44. In death, the body, the human body, is sown a perishable body. It's sown in dishonor. It's sown in weakness. And it's sown a natural body. Adam now perishes. Death is the ultimate evidence that sin has conquered us. There's no way to escape it. When that body succumbs, the body then perishes. It's not raised in glory like it was created. It's sown in dishonor. There's not strength there in a, in a, in a, in a body. It's dead. There's weakness. And it's very evident that it's natural. And Adam now perishes as a natural man instead of God's regent. I mean, the depth that sin has, has brought us. I left something out of those verses, didn't I? Would you turn over to 1 Corinthians 15? I want to show you what I left out and leave you with this thought. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42. It's a reason that we read these verses often at the graveside. Well, that's what we inherit and deserve from, from being Adam's offspring. We gain even more from the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's God's answer to, to sin and, and to death? Listen to, to Paul in the, in the same passage, putting back in what I left out, verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It's sown a perishable body. There's Genesis 3. It's raised an imperishable body. There's the result of the Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross. It, it, it's, it, it's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. And look at verse 45. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul. There's creation. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. you know what all of that says? It says the answer to the curse is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. and. He is our hope of overcoming the things that are in the world. He is your hope of overcoming the difficulties that come into life because of the fall and how it's manifesting in your heart, in your marriages, in your life. And He's the ultimate answer for how we overcome this curse if you come to Him in faith and repentance. And this whole scene ends again with mercy. Turn back to Genesis three, verse twenty and twenty one. How would you respond to this? You're hiding in the trees, you're naked, you're ashamed. God speaks to you, asks you these probing questions. Was God successful in drawing Adam and Eve out? How did they respond to the curse? They say, I can't believe God did that to me. Was the Lord successful? Do they have hope in what the Lord is saying? Look at verse 20. How did they respond? Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam's going to die but the woman's still going to bear seed. The seed's going to be victorious. There's life that's going to still come from this relationship. In verse 21, then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and for his wife and clothed them. There's consequence and curse which is the judgment but there's also the hand of a merciful God who now covers them better than they covered themselves. Two complete, I pointed this out last time. Two completely different words when they tried to cover themselves with, with the, the fig leaves or the proverbial fig leaves the, the covering that was there God now gives them a durable covering but it's the skin of an animal. Now The text here does not say that God kills the animal but that's surely implied. And he does it by killing the animal, echoing the first act of substitution. And that act of substitution will become clearer and clearer as Genesis moves along, all the way up to the cross, when the Lamb of God sheds his blood to cover us once for all and wash us clean. That's what happened on the cross. And then the resurrection gives us the power over the grave. You'll go in the ground, but you'll come out of the ground because of, of Jesus Christ. And that's the good news that the gospel offers to a cursed world. And then once that happens, then, then, then you now have a, a spiritual mind rather than a natural one. You have a desire to read the Bible. You have the ability to understand the Bible. And then you can go to the Bible and figure out how to order things right, things that have gotten completely out of order in all of those areas of, of life. Like, like marriage or whatever it might be. It's the grace that God gives us in the mess that that we created. He's a good God, isn't he? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear it is, how helpful it is, how it tells us the truth, even when we don't want to always hear the truth. But when we do, we just know, yes, that's, that's true, Lord, that's the way. And that's the, the sign of a humble heart, a heart that's been transformed by you. We hear your word. We submit to your word. Oh, Lord, we want to obey your word. We're not perfect yet. We long to be. We were reminded this morning we're, we're as good as there. We're, we're already glorified. We already declare that we're glorified even though we still have sin. Nothing will thwart us from getting to heaven, but progressively, Lord, we want to draw closer to you and submit more and more of our lives to to your truth. Help us to do that. And help us also to be able to to show others in life the why, where the issue lies. It's not with you. And then how to get out of the mess and ultimately to come to Jesus so they might be free and and cleansed. Lord, we just pray tonight, people that we might know, people that we don't know, people that we see on TV that are just going in all different crazy ways. We pray, Lord, that that you would help them help them see their need and return. Keep us from the error. We pray it all in Jesus name. Amen.